HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Yeah, that's right. It's Monday. Good afternoon, everybody. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we've got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking with the editor-in-chief of the Food and Environment Reporting Network. His name is Sam Fromartz. He's been a guest on this show a few times in the past, and I'm really happy to welcome him back. But before we get to Sam, I just have a couple of items in the joys and sorrows category that I wanted to share with you. Um, The first one was that uh, the Environmental Health News, EHN, um, which is one of my favorite pod, you know, uh, trade blogs that I, I follow on the internet a lot. Um, they have just published like a four or five part series called Peak Pig, uh, all about the pig industry, and I highly recommend it. It's really, of course, if you haven't read my book, What's the Matter with Meat, then you'll really need to read this. It, it kind of covers some of the same material, but that's because 
it's the same material. Um, so <clears throat> I highly recommend the series, and uh, it doesn't take too long to read it, um, but neither does my book, so you can also buy that. In fact, I would prefer it personally, but I understand not everybody wants to. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up today is that Sonny Perdue, our new uh, agricultural secretary, has pulled out of the interim final GYPSA rule, which was a really important piece of legislation that would have had a major impact on all livestock farmers, whether you're a niche farmer or especially for a commodity farmer. And um, what it would have done was allowed farmers and ranchers to protest unfair practices, um, price fixing, and various other <clears throat> perfidies that are visited upon them by the commodity uh, livestock industry. And the they would have been allowed to sue individually, whereas right now, if they want to sue a, a big packer, they have to prove that what the packer is doing is hurting the industry across the board as opposed to just that particular farmer, which makes it basically impossible for farmers to sue about unfair contract practices and so forth. So um, this is this is our administration at work doing its best to undermine agriculture. And I think everybody is aware, I, I don't know if you people read, but should have read um, Michael Lewis's expose in Believe It or Not, Vanity Fair, about what's happening at the... Um, USDA, but it's it's pretty alarming, um, given that their half of the positions are unfilled, and the other half are filled by people who have no business being in the USDA. Um, we luckily dodged the bullet of Sam Clovis, but believe me, the rest of the people that have been recruited to work in the agency don't really have a lot more use there than Sam did. So um, with that, uh, we will take a quick sponsor drop here, and we'll come right back with Sam Fromarts from the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, and we'll talk about hunger in America under the Trump administration. Stay tuned. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company, but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years and plus. Each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife, Charlie, started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years. But selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. 
Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And thank you to Bob's Red Mill for supporting Heritage Radio Network. We love you, Bob. Um, and now this is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. Um, and I'm Katie Kiefer. And on the line with me today is Sam Fromarts, who is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Food and Environment Reporting Network. He's an author and veteran journalist who focuses on the intersection of the environment, food, and farming. Um, he began his career at Reuters, and since leaving that news agency, his articles have appeared in Fortune, Business Week, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, among others. He is the author of Organic Inc., Natural Foods, and How They Grow, Grew, excuse me. And then his most recent book, which he was interviewed for here a couple of years ago now, um, is In Search of the Perfect Loaf, A Home Baker's Odyssey, which seems like, you know... And, just you know, why not write a book about bread? Um, and <laughs> it was a lo- it is a lovely book. It won the IACP Award for Literary Food Writing in 2015 and was shortlisted for the Art of Eating Book Prize. Since serving as the founding editor of FERN, Food Environment Reporting Network, also known as FERN, the organization has won two James Beard Journalism Awards and it also won a journalism award from IACP. Sam blogs at ChooseWise, which I love the pun there, Sam. I've always enjoyed that. And for some reason, are you still doing that blog? Uh, it's kind of fallen off the, the cliff lane. <laughs> too busy with my day job. Yeah, I figured. Um, but I, I used to really enjoy it. It was a, you know, it was kind of a catch-all for like basically the way I do joys and sorrows, where whatever interests me, I bring up. It's it seemed like Choose Wise was kind of that that kind of vehicle for you as well. Yeah, we we might ramp it up again. Um, I hope and so. I, you know, and then everything shifts to Facebook and other platforms. So, yeah, that's yeah, true. When I um, so Sam, you were part, you were the moderator of a panel which took place just recently. I think it was what November eighth um, in yes. California, and um, the idea of the panel was to explore action oriented community solutions to mitigate the impact of the Trump's Trump administration's proposed snap cuts, as well as their watered down school lunch standards and basically the anti immigrant policies on fun- that uh, have an impact on hunger and food security. So. You had some really great people, including one of my absolute all-time favorite guests, Ricardo Salvador, who I think is just so brilliant and so articulate that I I, I just bow down in front of Ricardo. (laughs) But you had some other great people, too. Elizabeth Gomez, who works as the Outreach Program Manager at the Alameda County Community Food Bank. Jessica Bartholomew, Policy Advocate at the Western Center on Law and Poverty. Alexis Guild, Senior Health Policy Analyst at Farm Worker Justice. So it was really an all-star group. So why don't you start by talking a little bit about um, what the goals of this um, panel were and what were the topics that really that you really covered in depth. Yeah, well, we, I mean, the, the panel was titled The Empty Plate, Fighting Hunger in the Age of Trump. And really what we wanted to do was explore, you know, issues of food access um, uh, that people have faced, in, you know, uh, since, uh, since the Trump administration. I mean, I mean obviously, the is doing, you know, uh, better than it was in the last recession, but, you know, food access uh, is still a big issue for a lot of Americans. Um, you know, last, or this, the fiscal year that just ended up, uh, you know, 42 million people were involved in, in uh, 
SNAP benefits, which stamps have, have become. And, um, you know, so there's still quite a number of people uh, that depend on and, and largely those households are, you know, people with children, you know, seniors or those with disabilities. So it's really you know, the more vulnerable population among us. Um, but we were really asked what's happening with the administration, and that's, that's what we hope that people uh, would answer, and, and they did. <laughs> mm. You know, that 42 million people, uh, insecure people, food insecure people in this country, that number has been around for a while. Like, I feel like that number happened right after the crash in 2008. So there's been no real change in that? No, no, it was it was actually higher during the during the uh, during the recession, and it has definitely um, come down. Ah. Um, but uh, but it's still it's still a large number. And, oh, yeah. And you know, I think it sort of speaks to the point that a lot of the economic gains that are occurring in the country, even you know the low unemployment rate, I mean, it's passing a lot of people we keep reading about. You know, wages have to really budge. Right. And I think this is a reflection of that. A couple of years ago, uh, we had done a, a photo essay on the face, we called it the faces of food stamps, mm-hmm. um, looking at people actually receive it. And there's this kind of, um, you know, uh, a stereotype of food, food, use, food stamps. And it's, you know, it's really actually a wide swath society from people in the military veterans, uh, a lot of people um, who are who are big, um, but just can't you know, uh, afford to put food on the table. Uh, you know, a lot of students uh, can't afford uh, food, and so they're yeah. so it's not, you know, it's not sort of, uh, uh, you know, if you have this image of a person's mind, actually quite a wide swath of society, and you know, in this talk, I came across one figure that really astounded me, astounded me which was that um, half of all people, half of all adults in this country will at some time uh, receive some form of food assistance, which is, you know, which is a figure and shows how, how crucial it uh, is. Absolutely. I mean, as one of your panelists pointed out at a certain point during the talk, it's like, you know, these people, if they don't get food stamps, it's not like they can go someplace else. It's like, if they don't get food stamps, they don't get food. And that's a basic yeah. thing. And one of the things that I, I thought was really interesting about the discussion was um, actually two things. One was that the economic trade-off between SNAP and jobs, like one of your panelists said <clears throat> that every dollar of benefit that goes out into the community generates a dollar seventy nine in return in terms of economic activity overall, and I wondered if you could kind of parse that out for people, because I thought that was yeah. one of the most interesting it, statistics it, it, I heard. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting now in in the context of of like the tax cut that we're that we're all reading about, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, and it's talked, you know, the idea is that if you cut taxes on corporations, you know, they will give, they will either invest more or hire more people or, you know, give more money to, to people in their pocket. And that's like a theory. Um, but, but actually, um, one thing about food stamps and the reason that it works so well, especially in a recession, 
is that people immediately spend that money uh-huh. um, on food, and that is stimulus to the economy in, in a very direct way. Um, like we know, we know people get food, you know, staff benefits will spend that money on food. You know, if you give a tax cut to a corporation, you don't actually know what's going to happen. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, and this came, that figure came out of the USDA study, which said, uh, get every dollar in staff benefits will reduce a dollar economic activity. And that's the effect of what's known as a multiplier effect. So it's not just buying the food um, with that money, but it's, you know, the people who work at the supermarket and the trucks who deliver the food and the, sure. you know, that produce it, and it just goes, you know, the multiplier effect goes on and on. That's why, it's, especially during a recession, why it's so stimulative uh, to the economy. You put money in people's pocket, pockets, and they'll immediately spend it. That'll help the economy as a whole. And, um, you know, they've even, the USDA has even, um, you know, been, you know of how many jobs, you know, staff benefits create that. So, uh, um, something like uh, nine to 18,000 jobs are created out of every use in staff benefits. Mm-hmm. When, um, if they, like in California, they're talking about a reduction of SNAP benefits. Obviously, that would be a federal, you know, federal event. But in California, a reduction in SNAP would have a disproportionate impact on farm workers. And <clears throat> I wondered if you could describe the sort of confluence of issues there in California that result in this ultimate irony that the folks who basically pick and process most of our fruits and vegetables don't actually have enough to eat themselves. Why does that happen? I mean, I know there's low wages, and that's that's right. obviously the biggest issue. But there are other aspects that have an impact on whether or not um, people who work in agriculture get what they need in terms of survival. Yeah, I mean, Alexis Gilt, who's a senior uh, policy analyst with Farmer Justice, or their farm worker organization, she gave the astounding figure that over eight and farm workers are secure, are food insecure. So that means, you know, that more than eight out of ten workers who are picking our food can't afford to buy the food, you know, which is astounding. Well, it's it's just shocking. You know, yeah, and this obviously focused in California, that's where the panel was, but you didn't think of workers, you know, in in really many states, not just California. Right. Well, I I would guess that almost any ag state, and and I'm sure this also applies to people who work in meat processing. I mean, that's my bailiwick. That's where I know the industry the best. Um, But that, you know, that's that's definitely an issue um, in meat packing and processing. It's the same thing. You have a lot of um, brown people working, (laughs) many of whom are undocumented. And um, and that has an impact on whether or not they get paid the fair wage that they need to survive.
We're back with Sam Fromart's editor-in-chief of Food and Environment Reporting Network. We're talking about hunger in the age of Trump and a recent panel discussion that um, Sam moderated. And just now we were talking about sort of why it is so that so many agricultural workers in California, but also really across all of the of the agricultural states in the United States, those workers are so typically underpaid um, that they end up being recipients of SNAP benefits. And so the the ultimate irony is that the people who produce our food are the people who can't buy it. And um, and we were talking a little bit about some of the many influences that go into making that happen. So, Sam, I'm going to let you pick it up from there um, and talk about yeah, some I of mean, the other issues. Not, you know, and I don't want to just single out farm workers. I, and obviously, this is a food show, so that's important. But it's really people who are on the lower end of the economic spectrum. Sure. And, you know, and today the majority of those people live in, in rural areas. And so they're really the ones who are dependent, you know, on these benefits. Right. So, um, you know, and with undocumented workers, um, you know, the issue is, is complicated because the agricultural industry obviously depends on these workers over, over half the workers who, who work in, in, in agriculture, you know, harvesters, et cetera, you know, are undocumented, but they actually don't, um, um, don't qualify for SNAP benefits because you need to, you mm-hmm. know, you, you, you need to have some residency status to get that. So they're right. really dependent for food, you know, food emergencies on food banks and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, uh, um, you know, so, uh, but just to back up, I mean, the, the whole, the whole issue that we're talking about, uh, you know, in the current, and with the current administration is really it, it, it sort of arose because the administration proposed a 25 percent cut in um, food stamp benefits, um, as well as um, scaling back the WIC program, which goes to women's infants and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the, the um, Republicans in Congress are also pursuing similar measures um, of cutting benefits. Um, through a program which may, of block grants, which would give states, you know, a set amount of money for these benefits. Right. The main criticism of that is that these programs really kick in during a recession, um, and if you have a set amount of money um, going to states, you know, if suddenly your population in your state um, seeking these benefits, you know, goes up by, you know. Uh, 10% or 20% or 50%, you know, you still have the same amount of money uh, coming from that block grant, so you can't really meet the need. Right. So that's, you know, that's one of the main issues. And um, That's quite terrifying, actually, isn't it? Well, that's that's what's being played out in Congress right now with with the, you know, budget discussions and Right, you know, right, and and, and you had some interesting um, you had some interesting comments about sort of what the cost of hunger and food insecurity is to the overall economic picture, which is and this is why I'm always amazed by the stupidity of the people in Congress, <clears throat> particularly the Republicans. It's the same thing with the health care thing uh, bill. Like if you take away people's health care, health care costs explode. If you take away people's food, then you're you're you have a, a, any number of ancillary uh, impacts and. I wondered if you would talk a little bit about how, um, for example, having food stamps as a young person, how that correlates to a better outcome in later life, stuff like that. There was some very interesting discussion around that, and I, I wanted you to recapitulate a bit. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a study that I that I mentioned, which looked at um, people who had received SNAP benefits in uh, uh, which were then food stamps mm-hmm. uh, in the 1960s when they were children, um, and what their outcomes were when they became adults, and it compared that those the, the, that uh, group of people to um, to other adults who had not received any benefits you know, when they were kids in the 1960s and who were also food insecure. And um, this was a study published last year, and it showed that, you know, decades later that the adults who received food stamps as children were more likely to be in good health. They had higher education levels, higher employment and earnings, and lower poverty rates. So, you know, uh, you know the, the, the fact that they tackled food security when they were kids, you know, had all these better outcomes when they were adults. And you see that also with things like the school lunch program that right. kids, you know, who have who have a breakfast, you know, can focus, um, you know, better on school during the day, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, in many for many kids, um, the most um, stable meal that they receive is, you know, school lunch. Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, and that, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a really important program. Why and, is it that um, legislators don't, don't make that correlation? Who is not bringing this to their attention? I don't understand. Help me, Sam. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, co- it all comes people? down to the issue of, you know, uh, you know, the old, the old, the old saw of, you know, it, sh- it should be personal responsibility. It should be on yourself. And I think one good point that that um, that Ricardo Salvador made was, you know, he pointed to the structural issues that yes. that people face, um, and it's it's not it's not just a question of personal responsibility. It's it's a question of what you know what um, what what lines of of economic access do you have open to you? What jobs are available? How much do they pay? You know, that kind of thing. And he made the good point that that actually if people were paid a decent wage at the lower end of the ladder, you know, there would be less need for these programs, um, which is true, which is why his organization, for example, is advocating for the, the $15, you know, minimum wage. Right. Um, and, you know, so that's, so that's, you know, that's that's one sort of structural issue. Another huge structural issue is the fact that food food companies are actually big advocates of SNAP benefits because it, you know, it sells it sells a lot of food. You know, if forty if forty one million Americans uh, uh, are on these uh, on these programs, you know, they're buying food. So yeah. it's if you take that away, you know, that in the same way that food food stamps can have a multiplier effect in creating economic activity. If you take it away, it could also reduce economic activity. So the third thing I would mention is that, you know, uh, as I said, companies, you know, really, really depend on these programs for, um, uh, you know, for, for an economic benefit. So, uh, Maybe there was another point in there. <laughs> I, but I know. I'm but sorry. I apologize for that. But that's okay because yeah. I have so many questions. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. I hear a slight echo on my end too. I don't know if that's. Do you? Uh, I, I'm not hearing that. You, but you sound fine now. So, um, okay. And you talked a minute for about the block grants, but there was another issue um, that has been uh, floated 
about um, able-bodied, um, you know, adults, meaning not elderly, not disabled, not children, um, being limited to three months of food stamp benefit or SNAP benefit out of every 36 months. Right. That, to me, was also, like, when I think about veterans, for example, that just seems so beyond the pale. I mean, I, you well, know. Well, that's what it is now, and that's what they want to reduce further. Oh, really? So, it's already th- yeah. limited to three months? Yes. Wow. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then so they want to reduce that to what? It's, it's able-bodied adults without dependents. So mm-hmm. if you're like a single person, you know, in their 30s and you hit a rough patch, you know, that you're only, you're only eligible for those, those benefits during that time. Wow. And then there was so, another... That's, oh, sorry. That's what they want to cut back on and, um, yeah. And replace it with and, a thousand points of light? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and, and, and have yeah, more, you know, more restrictions in terms of uh, how long you can get those benefits. Right. And, you know, um, you know, it might be limited to, the, you know, you, you actually have to be working, you know, that kind of thing. Or, oh, know, my God. It's, it's just, it's, again, it's, it gets back to this issue of, you know, the, 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 uh, the Republicans laws, you know, beat on, which is the personal responsibility issue. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, I wanted to also bring up the public charge aspect of this, uh, that also being a qualifier for not so much for um, for acquiring food, snap, uh, food stamp benefits or SNAP benefits, but for acquiring citizenship or, or a path towards citizenship. Because in a, well, a lot of ways, this, these are so these issues are so tied up into immigration and immigration reform. And um, I know right. we don't want to so much get into the immigration side of it, but there's there's that whole aspect of being a public charge that could have an impact on your path to citizenship. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I've never me, heard that before. By the way, walk you through that because it's a complicated issue, yeah. but it stems from one thing that we were surprised to hear from the panelists, which is. Um, like, for example, Alameda County Food Bank mm-hmm. uh, started to get calls from people um, asking that they be taken off food stamps. And the reason was, um, and, and, you know, and to not receive benefits. And the reason that these people were asking for that is they thought it would impact their immigration status um, down the line. And so these were, were people who might have, you know, permanent residency, you know, a uh, green card or whatever. And they, they, there was a rumor going around that if you were going to re- receive food stamps, that it would somehow um, uh, uh, make you, um, give you, give you a designation of public charge, which, which under federal law would prevent you from eventually getting citizenship. So that was... Um, you know that that has not happened. Um, there's a rumor. You know, given the whole uh, sort of anti-immigrant climate, there's a fear that it might happen. Yeah. And so that's why people were um, were trying to get themselves off the, you know, off the off these benefits. And you know, which is, um, I think, uh, you know, alarming in the sense that, you know, if if you were dependent on these benefits to feed your family. Um, so what are you, what are you then going to do? You know, um, how are you going to put food on the table? Um, you know, so that's, that's a real concern. What, what, um, what is clear though, is that when you, when you get 
food from a food bank, which is, you know, you go and just get a bag of groceries or whatever right. whatever they give, you know, then there are no questions about, you know, your status or anything else. That's right. So people can still get access to emergency food aid. But um, we were also hearing that people were not going to, you know, medical clinics anymore for the same reason. They right. didn't want their names entered in any system that would somehow be trackable by the federal government. So, you know, so these, these are, this is all the sort of the climate of fear, yeah. you know, that, um, that, uh, that undocumented workers or, or even those who are documented um, are operating under. Sure. That's, that's terrifying. Um, let's, let's turn for a minute to um, some solutions. Like what were some of the conclusions of the panel in terms of after these problems are laid out and, and Ricardo, I really urge people to listen to this. It's on the Fern Facebook page. The, um, isn't that right, Sam? It's on the Fern. Yeah. You can yeah, listen to the, the whole panel. Whole it's like an hour the, long. The video is archived. Yeah. It's, and you know, it's, it's got a lot of really interesting information. And then Ricardo Salvador, just breaks it all down into something that is not something that's just happening now, but it is something that is institutionalized and systematized into uh, what you want to call food policy, I guess, in this country, um, and has to do with wages and all of the all of the rest. But um, I guess what I was looking for from the panel, and I I, I can't say that I really got a, a strong sense of what solutions outside of legislation. I mean, Ricardo talked about using current laws and regulations to move the needle forward on, um, you know, improving the lot of the poor in general. But I didn't really know what those laws and regulations were and and also how they would have applied to um, some of the issues that, say, that big food bank in Alameda County is facing where they have, like, 100,000 people a month are looking for food there. I mean, that's a huge right. amount of food to round up every month. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. So, like, what and, were the um, what were the ideas I mean, that you guys came up it, with? In a simple way, it was it was being aware of the issues. Obviously, um, you know, supporting those organizations that are doing this work. But I think more in, importantly, a lot of these organizations, and it could be you know your local food bank in whatever city you're in. Um, you know, has advocacy campaigns, that kind of thing, um, to to advocate for for these issues. And you know, there there's been like a historic, um, I would I would call it compromise or or deal between the farm states and urban states. And essentially, the urban lawmakers will vote for. Um, the subsidies that farm states are looking for for their farmers, and in return, the farm state legislators typically vote in favor of continued um, SNAP benefits and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, for, for people in the audience who don't know, these the things like farm subsidies as well as SNAP benefits, they are part of the farm bill, which comes around every five years and we're up for a new farm bill next year. So all right. of these issues are currently in play, and given the fractured state of our politics these days, it's uncertain, you know, how things are going to play out. So I think that's why now particularly um, it's important to get involved in these issues. 
Oh, most definitely. I wanted to go back to something about um, earlier when you were talking about the demographic of people who receive SNAP benefits in this country. Um, and, you know, you made it clear that it, it encompasses a wide swath of the population. But I, you know, I always thought that actually the biggest recipient group of SNAP benefits were white people. And, and generally speaking, they seem to be the ones who voted for Trump. And I'm just curious, like, has there been any um, response from that kind of community, those rural white communities in the heartland and so on, um, in response to the idea that their SNAP benefits might be cut? Well, I mean, it was not just SNAP benefits. It was also health care. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot, right, right. Uh, so, there, you know, there hasn't, I don't think there has been, um, mm. I mean, the articles that I've read about about Trump's base is they're still with him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not sure what it'll what it will take to change that, if if anything. But I think, you know, as we've seen in in healthcare, and as we're going to, you know, potentially see with these food access benefits, I mean, they it will have a big impact uh, across a wide you know, swath of the country. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and yes, um, food insecurity is slightly higher in rural areas than in cities, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and you're pro I haven't seen a racial breakdown, but you know, you're, you're probably right. But it's, but it, it's basically anyone in the lower end of the income spectrum who is dependent on these benefits and potentially, um, you know, will be hurt by by any cuts, mm -hmm. and and I think when you think of the most vulnerable populations, you're talking about kids, you're talking about the elderly, and you're talking about the disabled. Yeah. So, um, it's 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 troubling. It's very troubling, and you know, I th and then I and then I start thinking about things like what you were saying earlier, like, well, what do they do if they if they can't if their SNAP benefits get cut and they can't put food on the table for their family? I'm thinking, well. I would rob somebody, <laughs> you know, I would steal. I mean, you know, people are driven to do quite desperate things when it comes to seeing a child or an elderly parent or your wife or whatever, um, you know, suffering from hunger pangs. And, you know, I'm seeing that we could see some civil unrest in the future if we start really being draconian about these snap cuts. And I, I just wonder how far in the future... Um, you know, politician, American politicians are able to think about those things. It doesn't seem like that yeah, many well, of them. Hopefully it won't get to I that hope point. Not. And hopefully there'll be enough pushback, you know, that it, that, that these kind of cuts that they're talking about won't go through. Um, who would yeah, you consider? It, I who, think it's a, I think it's a question mark. Yeah. I mean, who would you consider an ally in this battle um, in Congress, like who are who are your favorite senators who support SNAP benefits and the expansion of, of Medicaid and, and the the health care bill? The the kind of people who really um, who will go to the mat for this? Not on the de Democratic side, but who in the Republican Party do you think um, is likely to push back against these um, these crazy budget cuts? For example, well, I think actually there's been a lot of positive statements from. As you know, as I said, from from farm state legislators mm -hmm. who recognize that, you know, they might not get what they need if a program like SNAP benefits is cut dramatically. Um, but a lot of things are in play because you have 
a whole, you know, Republican caucus now, a part of it that, you know, does want to cut back on these programs and also wants to cut back farm supports. Right. So I think that's where this this sort of historic coalition of farm state legislators and urban lawmakers, you know, I think the question is, you know, can they hold um, enough um, weight to to sort of counter these these new these new trends? That's the Tea Party side of the of things, is what you're talking about, yeah, right? Those yeah, guys, that, yeah, and like the Rand Pauls, conservatives, the, yeah. yeah. Well, the exactly. fiscal conservatives seem to be ready to put us into a gigantic debt hole again through the tax cuts. So I, I'm not even sure who they are. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they've forgotten about fiscal conservatism. And as one pundit said, the only reason they're not talking about it now is because then after they enact the tax cuts and they get what they want, then they can say, oh, my God, we're going to have a terrible deficit. We have to cut all these entitlement programs now. I mean, that does seem to be the playbook, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is, you know, constituents, I think, in, in farm countries, you know, and, and I'm not talking about, like, the small farmers. I'm talking about, like, the big farmers who mm. tend to support the big commodity groups. I mean, they're already worried about things like, you know, the Trump beat against NAFTA and things like that were, oh, yeah. you know, that have clearly benefited them. I mean, Mexico and Canada are the, the you know, number number two and number three biggest markets for, for, for export, for farm exports. Sure. So, you know, they're already worried. And then when you start fraying at their, you know, subsidy net, um, <laughs> that, that further, that further causes concern. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I, I guess, I guess I see, I guess what I'm saying is that a lot of things are in play and it's not clear how the, how this is all going to shake out and it's not you know it's it's not it's not a clear like democratic versus republican you know sort of fissure on these issues mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I you've made, given me a lot to think about just in terms of the way they um, cut a deal between the farm states and the urban st- and the urban areas like yeah. I'm, I'm well, going to give you this if you give me that. What it, you know, yeah. the, the deal. I hadn't really thought about it that way. That's what though. happens every five years, and mm-hmm. that the question is: is that deal going to hold? You know, this time around. Right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there, Sam. Thank you so much for joining me today. And um, now is your opportunity to promote yourself and um, your publication <laughs> shamelessly. To my- <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to see our work, you know, visit thefern.org, and you'll see a lot of our in-depth investigative journalism. Um, you'll also see a link there for our Ag Insider daily policy briefing. And that's where a lot of the, if 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 you want to follow, you know, the the ins and outs of what's happening with things like the Farm Bill, that's the Ag Insider is the place to look. Fantastic! But if I you're, love if Chuck you're Abbott. Seeking like a more you know in depth kind of um, um, storytelling, great photographs, that kind of thing, then our, our long-form pieces on the on org is, is the place to go. Well, thank you so much. And um, I really, I urge people to check out the Fern website because it is terrific. And if you don't subscribe to the um, Ag Insider with Chuck Abbott, who's also been a guest on this program, um, you should do so now because it's really, it's an invaluable tool for watching sort of the ins and outs, the stuff that you don't see reported really in any other um, format. 
in any other uh, main, certainly not in the mainstream media. So um, my hat's off to you guys for doing such a great job. I love Fern, and I always have. And I think I was one of your earliest supporters. Didn't I have you on to talk about Fern yeah, when you, you first started yeah, you've it? Been there since the start. I I've have really indeed. Appreciate uh, your support. Absolutely. And we love being on your show. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure it will be happening more and more <laughs> as more and more <laughs> things unfold. Anyway, thanks to you, Sam, and thanks to my sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. And I'm going to take a minute here to just remind people this is our end-of-the-year fund drive. We have until December 31st to raise $150,000. That money goes towards keeping my show and all the other great shows on the air, as well as our special projects like the Modernist Breadcrumb series that is being put together by my one and only engineer, Dave Tashitori. And um, I know I said that wrong, Dave. Never mind. <laughs> um, but uh, do, do you know, go to the website, hit the donate button, become a member of Heritage Radio Network. Or if you're in a business and you want to subscribe to our, you know, become a sponsor, that would be absolutely awesome. We do a lot of sponsor drops for our people. We help them out in as many ways as we can. And, um, and it, is, it doesn't cost a whole lot of money to become a sponsor. So um, whether you want to become a member individually or become a sponsor or business partner or whatever it is, join us. Join us so that we can continue the work that we do here. Um, Some of it is fun, 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 like Wedding Cake or, you know, uh, Dave Arnold's Amazing Show, um, which I can never remember the name of, but anyway, I love it. And uh, and all the other people, Linda Palaccio with Taste of the Past, another great show. There's just, there's 36, 37 of us now, maybe 40. We might even be up to 40 shows. I think we put four more on this year. So um, join us. Become a member. Support Food Radio. We're the only game in town that does this uh, to the extent and the depth that we do. Thanks for listening now, and we'll see you next week. So long, folks. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Searching.